You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. I'm joined by a writer, director and actor who we featured a few months ago now. She managed to single-handedly shoot a feature film on an iPhone. Jennifer Zhang, welcome back to the film podcast. So happy to be back. I feel like I'm family now at this point. (laughs) (laughs) You are, yeah. You know, for you, it's been like a year like no other, right? Yeah. (laughs) And I'm not talking about the pandemic when I say that, but rather the upside or the silver lining that you found in a bad situation by deciding to sit down whilst in lockdown and write a feature film and then act in the film for the most part by yourself and then oh yeah you decided to direct the film as well now looking back (laughs) do you sometimes catch yourself saying did I really do that oh all the time it seems like madness now in retrospect but it was you know we were all caught in that situation where it's like we have infinite amounts of time no end in sight to whatever that was the pandemic And so I think we all went a little mad and it seemed like that was done in a very special state of madness. And I couldn't have plotted something better for my career, it turns out. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about what's happened since we last spoke when we first brought your story to the podcast, which is a fair few months ago now. So what has Mm -hmm. happened? I'm sure the indie filmmakers will be interested to know. It started getting some international buzz in Japan. It got featured without the newscasters really knowing anything about the film other than the fact that the conditions under which it was made was were extraordinary. They did like a little feature on it where they pulled clips. I don't even know how they got the information that they got, but this was like Japan's version of Good Morning America, really big network show. And then it sold. I, I sold this cell phone film to a distributor called Summerhill Entertainment. And they, they do a lot of horror films, but also some art, artsy-fartsy films. And, and since then, just the attention and the press that's come of it, I've now done two large-budget short films that were like directly linked to the momentum I got off that cell phone movie. And so those are set for release, at least in film festivals next year. I'm really excited about it, but uh, this cell phone movie changed my life. Um, If anyone is routinely dismissing the idea of shooting something on their mobile phone, they need to banish that immediately and and try it. Well, let's, Jennifer, have a look at some of the technology for 2021 with mobile phones, because it has been a little bit transformative with some of the things that have come along. So you know this world much greater in detail than I ever will. So for our audience, can you maybe give us a little bit of a breakdown on some of the things that you found personally from not only a filmmaking point of view, but just from a geek point of view that has really... sort of opened up a few different avenues for you to film in. Yeah, well, the the big game changer this last year was that cinematic mode in iPhone's new release, the iPhone 13. But, I mean, overall, I would say the thing that's made mobile filmmaking progress in leaps and bounds is, like, the processing power and the storage on phones seems to have just... It's starting to, like, surpass what a computer can do. I believe my phone has more storage on it now than my laptop, which is insane. The ruggedness of mobile phones now is interesting, right? Like the fact that you could shoot underwater with like a lot of clarity. I know the new phones do better with low light than they've ever done before. 
And that's incredible for a filmmaker because it really makes it so that if you see something out in the wild, really, if you're out at night and you see something you want to shoot, you don't have to really light it for it to be visible, for there to be enough data in the image. The thing about mobile filmmaking, right, is that if a story is happening in front of you in real time, within seconds, you could be capturing it. That's the benefit of it. Going back really quickly to the thing about shooting underwater. So I have a friend whose entire life has been being the expert at underwater shooting, right? She has like rigs. She has like special boxes that you take a camera down into the water. And new cell phone technology has pretty much put her out of business. It's a brave new world. So and, and kids these days, you know, are all equipped with this particular tool. You're just going to see just organically a lot of people, a lot of teenagers becoming filmmakers naturally without even knowing that that's what they're training themselves to do. Okay. And is there anything in 2022 that's coming up for release with cell phone technology that is good for filmmakers to know about? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know the name of it, but I hear tell from a friend of mine. There is a film that's been shot entirely on a cell phone that's a Western. That I'm hmm. really excited to see. Well, we're going to have a look at some tips and advice around filmmaking for a lot of our filmmakers. And it's nice really just to reflect back across the year with some of the filmmakers that we have spoken to. Let me ask you, Jennifer, what is something that's played in the last couple of years in terms of a series that you absolutely love? Uh, what we do in the shadows, <laughs> I'm obsessed with. Okay, so what we do in the shadows, you love that show as you do. Mm -hmm. Imagine that after watching that series, you sit down and you write a screenplay and you push it out into the world and you discover that the producers of that television show come to you and say, hey, we've read your screenplay. We want you to direct the movie. We're going to come in and support you. That would be insane. You're saying this has happened to somebody you know, that lucky bastard? <laughs> yeah. Well, earlier this year, I spoke to Abigail Dean about her award-winning novel, which is now a bestseller. It's a debut novel. It's called Girl A. Sony have picked up the rights to turn this into a film. As you know, Jennifer, you never know when producing something creatively where that is going to lead. Mm -hmm. And there is three degrees of separation. So Abigail was a huge fan of the Chernobyl series. That's a recent series as well. Yeah. And that was directed by Johan Rink. Mm -hmm. Now, it just so happens that Johan reads her book when it comes out. And Johan is associated with Sony, who decided to make the film. Johan wants to direct the film. And then she gets a phone call saying, hey, I love your book. And she says, oh, my gosh, Chernobyl. I love the series. So that's why I asked you, because that's what's happened in this case. And you just never know when, you know, that three degrees of separation is going to happen. I am jealous. <laughs> I am overcome with jealousy, but in a good way. That's incredible for Abigail. That's really great. I mean, skill obviously is involved there. She had to have written a good book. It also just sounds like the, the stars aligned as well. Shall we hear her tell us the story? Would love to. Yeah, that that was um, that was kind of incredible. Uh, you know, I, I guess it, it exactly as surreal and 
unbelievable as, as it sounds. I do absolutely love TV and I love limited series in particular. Recently, I've kind of, I've, I love Chernobyl and I'm kind of really huge, huge TV fan. Hearing that Johan Renk had loved Girl A was just, just, just kind of bizarre and wonderful. I thought that Chernobyl had such a mix of bleakness and beauty to it. Obviously, it's set in a devastating landscape, but there are these amazing human relationships that are taking part within that landscape. Um, incredibly kind of tender moments between the characters. The devastation is shot so beautifully as well. I just thought it was wonderful. And so I think that, you know, having somebody who has created something like Chernobyl, e even read Girl A and like it, it is kind of a dream come true um, in itself. You could hear it. You could. She's still in a daze over it. Like even just in her recounting of it, she, there's like a, a wonderment that you can hear in her voice. I'm really happy for her. That's really great. I'm still jealous, but I'm very happy for her. <laughs> I actually asked her if she was going to be doing the adaption from the novel to the screenplay, but she decided to leave that alone for now because she's not experienced as a screenwriter, which is probably fair enough. Mm. But I think uh, probably her next novel, she'll probably end up adapting that. But yeah, such a really great story of just how things can just change very quickly. And I mean, a lot of these cases are out there where somebody has admired somebody and then ends up working with them. Yeah, yeah. And our next guest is Julia von Hines. Now, we spoke to her earlier in the year. She wrote a political thriller called And Tomorrow the Entire World which is currently screening on Netflix. And I asked her, when writing a political thriller, if there is any one tip that she could pass on to indie filmmakers when writing a political screenplay. The most important process for me was don't try to educate your audience. Don't try to give them a message. This is so boring. We don't want that. This is why we read a newspaper, for example, but we go to film because we want to open up our mind and we want to ask ourselves questions and not to get answers like in a propaganda film. And I really had to learn that. When I was in the Antifa group and I wrote the first draft of the script, I was so sure who is good and who is bad. I wanted to tell the people my truth and I was so convinced about that truth. And this film would have been so boring. And it took me years to find out that this truth doesn't exist and that there is not the good Antifa group full of nice people and the bad, bad Nazis. It's so much more complicated. And this makes the film interesting. And whoever is writing a political film should be precise and not to have that message in his or her mind, but to be precise and to talk about people, not about politics. That's so true, isn't it? It is. Uh, it, she, she's right in that if anyone wanted to know the nitty gritty of politics, it's accessible in news, news outlets. But I mean, the thing that makes politics interesting, the thing that makes war interesting, the thing that makes anything interesting is the human element because we are humans. You want to know the emotions behind the people that are moving the pieces and their human motivations and the human toll that decisions have when, you know, they come from people of power. So 
that's that's really wise of her to point that out. It's almost yeah. counterintuitive, right? Everyone thinks, oh, if it's a political thriller, people like it for the political aspects, but she's saying the opposite. What you don't want to do is you don't want to lecture people about a certain subject. That's pretty much what she's saying in terms of her film was about Antifa and the Nazis. And she had this very sound position where she thought she knew who the bad guys were and who the good guys were, meaning Antifa were good, the Nazis were bad, but it's not as black and white as that. And to her credit, the way that she presented the film was she lent into both sides. She didn't just present the piece as Nazi are bad and evil. She humanized them. And that's what you have to do with anything that you write. You have to make everything more human. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, us consuming stories is about adopting new perspectives instead of just having our own perspective regurgitated back at us. So it's fascinating. What a cool approach to doing something political, a political thriller, as incendiary as that one sounds. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like definitely is hot button. And Jennifer, you didn't go to film school. I didn't go to film school. There's a lot of indie filmmakers listening that did not go to film school. Can you imagine? applying to film school for seven or eight times and being turned down every time you want to go you desperately want to go but they say no <laughs> that's heartbreaking like my, my guts and knots just you saying that so julia van hines who we just heard about talking about and tomorrow the entire world this is what happened to her and this is julia explaining it i was not on a film school and i'm really used to get all that no's because I applied eight times at a film school and I always get a, got a no and I really learned since that you can't accept a no. Okay, if it comes three times, you have to accept it. But yeah, not after the first no. That's not <laughs> enough. <laughs> Embrace the word no because the more no's that you get, the closer to a yes you are. <laughs> Yeah, probably. Just picking up on the, the film school. So you didn't go to film school or you, you did finally get no. into film school? No, I didn't manage. I tried it many times because I love film schools. Now I'm a professor in a, at a very important film school in Munich. I just love that environment. And teaching film is for me as great as making films. But I never um, was a student in a film school. I tried many times and always I got quite far you know they invited me and i had the um, interviews and all that and sometimes i think that i was quite early a mother and i think to that time people didn't think a mother could be a director so that stood in my way so i really had to prove that i'm a good director by making short films and being on festival and winning awards. And so, no, I didn't go to a film school. Well, the irony of that is brilliant. The fact that you are now a professor teaching film at a film yeah. school. That, that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very strict because if someone is very comfortable and thinks he needs a lot of money for a, for a student film, or I'm very strict. I say, no, you don't need money to, for that idea. You can do it <laughs> with everything <laughs> you have here. I love that little end bit there where she says, yeah, if some student comes to me, wants to make a short film, wants a lot of money, no, you're not getting any money for that. Just go out and make it. Yeah, that that's a message that certainly resonates with me, <laughs> especially this last year. 
it is one of those things that I, I like to push with people, which is if you have a story to tell, then you got to find a way to tell it. And if money is the barrier, you got to remove that barrier. What different times we live in. I mean, we're talking about when Julia was trying to get into film school and she suspects that because she was a young mum that that was being held against her. Things have sort of moved on a little bit since then. Uh, absolutely. I think people actually want those stories told. If you're a mother who's trying to be a filmmaker, that's a perspective now that people are interested in hearing. So much more complex and people are interested in like different stories now. And the irony, of course, I mean, it's just such a lovely story that she is now a professor at a film school in Munich, which is a prestigious film school, yet she was turned down eight times. I, I just, you know, I think just never give up. You just can't give up. If yeah. that's your passion, just keep going because sooner or later, somewhere down the track, things are going to change, things are going to turn in your direction, it's going to favour you just enough for you to start sort of transitioning into what you want to do. It sounds like also that she, you know, covered her bases there with one, determination and not taking no for an answer. But when she got enough no's to, to realise that that wasn't the track that she needed to take, she pivoted. Being able to adapt and being determined, those are both incredible attributes to have and it sounds like she has both of them. And I think film schools, while we're here, in terms of film schools for 2022, 2023, and 2024, I think it's going to be very difficult for a lot of these film schools to get people into campus, onto these courses, because since we've had this lockdown part of our lives, so many people have obviously started teaching themselves. We, we know that we can learn online anyway, but it's been elevated it's been heightened there's a lot of talk around film schools i still personally think that it's a personal choice now whether or not you want to go to film school or not it's up to the individual because there will be people and i've said this before on the podcast there will be people that want to interact with others and the only way that you can do that is be at film school yeah absolutely it's the fastest way to create a little filmmaking community as well right where you have access to each other's resources and another one of our guests I spoke to is Tom Bazooka, the director-writer of the Kevin Costner and Diane Lane film, Let Him Go. Imagine, Jennifer, getting to shoot your first feature film with a reasonable-sized cast and crew, and how nervous you would be, because it's daunting, right? Imagine, first time, how do you think you'd go? Um, I mean, I would feel like an imposter the whole time. I'd be so nervous. I would be non-functional. <laughs> Now, the reason that you say that is that you've done your feature film, you've done short films, you know what it's like being on set. Uh, yes, absolutely. And when you're in a position as a director and everybody's got questions for you and you have to answer with authority, very daunting. Imagine, for good measure, that you're stepping onto a film set, your first film with that cast and crew and you are stepping onto a film set for the very first time, which just happens to be your feature film. You've never been here before. How the heck did he find himself in this situation? <laughs> I'm very interested in this story. Tell me more. Like it's almost being in a blind situation. Yeah. You are on set as the director, but you've never been on a film set before. How does this even happen? I, I, I don't even want to imagine it. That's way too terrifying. 
Shall we have a listen to the way he describes it? Absolutely. The first day on set was my first time ever setting foot on on a set. (laughs) Wow. uh, Yeah, it's a little, but it's, you know, it's one of those things I used to joke. In Thelma and Louise, they, you know, they blow up that tanker truck and they're driving away. And Louise says to Thelma, where'd you learn to shoot like that? And she says, oh, off of the TV. (laughs) There's a little bit of... um, there's so many films about making films that I had an idea of how it worked. I had poured over the Truffaut Hitchcock book was probably my most prized possession when I was in high school. And I, I definitely studied that. It, a true leap of faith on the part of the actors to work with me because I had never done that before. Unless you've actually directed a film, it is incredibly hard to try and describe what that is like to somebody that has not directed a film. So first, (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine the first day because we are all nervous, doesn't matter how many films that we've done, when you are standing there first day and the cast and crew are looking towards you to, to lead them. Just the dynamic on set. Everybody has a job. Everybody... On every film, still on every film I work on, everybody else has more experience than I do. It's a machine. And the machine, in a strange way, assembles itself. You know, you choose your department heads, whether it's your DP, your sound person, the production designer, and they all lead their group. You're just sort of at the top. But that machine strangely propels you forward. If you're prepared which, you know, I have the advantage having written the scripts. I've spent more time with the characters. I have, you know, sort of struggled to find the words to describe what I see in my head. And now you're sort of driving that forward. Jennifer, what do you think about that? That's fascinating that he trained himself off of learning about how the sausage is made and then being thrown into a sausage factory to make sausage. I can't even process that properly is that he knew how to do all of that by reading about how to do it or like watching shows about how to do it. That's incredible. And was able to pull it off convincingly. I'm, I'm impressed. Well, Tom is correct. You know, he says it's a machine and that is quite right. If you select heads of department people with a lot of experience and you gather them around you, that is going to help you a long way down the track, especially for a first time director doing that. And especially if they're all patient with understanding that everybody has a first time, like Mm. if, if they're, if your heads of departments are supportive and like willing to help you understand what their department does and and how they're going to be integral in what you're doing, that's a gift. I've certainly been on sets where heads of departments have not had faith in the director and then let that be known and that toxicity has permeated a set mm. versus ones where like every head of department is supportive of a director because they know that at the end of the day this is a collaborative effort it makes all the difference the thing about a set he's right in that it is a machine and you know one broken cog really just causes a shutdown doesn't it it does and to tom's credit he is not ego driven he talks about even his film and what he has done he talks about the people around him having more experience than he does which means that he's being incredibly modest because 
He can make a film, there's no doubt about that, but he isn't chest beating. He's keeping it very low key on set is my guess, and that's what makes him successful. He's very calm throughout the process of filmmaking. That humility probably really fostered an environment where people wanted to support him and help him. You come back to short films. I, I remember the first short film that I did. I was petrified. The first morning was a shoot on a beach, and this had a reasonable size cast and crew, considering that it was a short film. It was a five-day shoot. Looking back now, sort of five days and what we captured, we were really gunning it. You know, It was a lot of work to get through for my first film. But I just can't imagine stepping onto a film set, oh, which God. is a, fe a feature film. And even though Tom talks about, you know, the film with all the talent around him and the film being able to be made, he still has to make hundreds and hundreds of filming decisions every day mm -hmm. to keep the wheels moving forward and not off during a day's schedule. So to be able to do that very first time on, I don't know how he managed to do it, but he did. Mm -hmm. Everything that you learn in life, like how you relate to other humans, all your interpersonal connections, how you handle situations that require diplomacy, all that plays into being a director. It's funny how like you have to be the ultimate human <laughs> to be able to be a good director, right? You have to understand emotion. You have to understand people. You have to understand like politics, diplomacy. You have to understand project management. If Tom is naturally somebody who's got a good grasp on a lot of things and, and how to move through this world, that probably all lent itself to his directing. Well, his backstory is that he used to work for Ralph Lauren and had a team under him. So that certainly helped. He talked about that on the episode. But there's no doubt in a previous career, if you're in charge of a team, that will certainly assist you. That'll go a long way down the track to helping you organize people and corral people, which is what filmmaking is all about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So before we go, Jennifer, is there anything that you have seen of late that you would like to talk about? Anything on Netflix, anything on Amazon Prime? Sure. You know, I just started watching The Great, which is, uh, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, well, I, I interviewed the director oh my here God. On, on the podcast. That's amazing. Uh, that's really funny because I did not know that. And it sounds like a total plant. It sounds like we just like planned that answer. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Would you like to hear from him while we're here? I'd love to. People will think this is a setup, but it's not. I can assure you. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you serious? I just stumbled upon, like, uh, the perfect segue. That's great. I'd love to hear from <laughs> All right. So here he is talking about some of the production design on The Great. The, the scale of the crew on The Great really blew my mind because it's an American show. I did a start one of my episodes as a, an army camp, a Russian army camp on the, the front of the war with Sweden. And essentially, it's just a big, muddy field full of people. But the scale of the away unit that we had to build to shoot that was astonishing. The numbers of trucks and the amount of metal flooring and that you have to put it down to kind of pull something like that off. Because period is it's just much more labor intensive. So the numbers of standby wardrobe and makeup people in a period show just explodes. If I asked for 100 extras, that means probably another 30 standby makeup people. It's insane because they, they all have to get these people ready and they all have to be ready at the same time. 
there was a, a full-time special effects department of which two people were employed full-time every day to simply manage the candles. That was their <laughs> entire job. Obviously, they're a continuity nightmare and, you know, the, the sets are big, but they would, they would get hot. You can't leave candles burning the whole time. Literally, there were two people who, before you would do any take, would come around and light all the candles and after cut, we'd put them all out again. I had no idea that anything like this would happen. I mean, of course it does when you think about it. That makes perfect sense. But in terms of you talk about, you know, kind of what it was like to step onto a different size set or a different kind of set, that was certainly one of them. We had fireplaces too in all those rooms. They had real fires in them. Some of them gave us problems with smoke and that we, you know, we could only turn them on just as we were about to roll the cameras and then had to turn them straight off again afterwards. So there you go, Jennifer. That is a little bit about the great and the production values and those candles, you know, one person's job or several people probably, but they've got to keep lighting those candles. That's so, it's so funny. And it's those little challenges of like filmmaking that are like the best stories that come out of this particular craft. I guess a, a parallel story, I got off of a short film that I directed where there was a clock in a room and it was really important that the clock display the correct time because of the way the plot moved. You know, in a very similar way, we had one person who was dedicated to <laughs> setting that clock to the right time every time we called action. So it's, it's funny. It's those little things that you wouldn't think would be such a pain in the ass, but there you go. <laughs> You raise a really good point, something that I'm just thinking about, and that is one person dedicated for that clock. Imagine if one person was dedicated on the railway tracks with that incident. I think she was a focus puller that was oh. killed in America. If they had have had one person looking out for the trains that was a kilometre or two down the track with a walkie-talkie yeah. just to say, hey, guys, train is coming she would still be alive. Absolutely. It's like these little things. And had that person done that job, you know, correctly all day long without incident, it could have been like a conversation afterwards, like, did we even need that guy? You know, but because we didn't have that guy on that, that's why we recognize like the importance of people that have like the one job. I know on my short film, if we didn't have the one person watching the clock and we had one shot where the clock was displaying the wrong time, it would have cost us enough money in post-production in VFX <laughs> yeah, exactly. to change it that it could have <laughs> sunk the budget a little. So, so I mean, they're clock continuity. That's yes. what their job is. Yeah, our VFX budget can't handle, like, rotoscoping out a clock where the camera's moving if it displays the wrong time. So <laughs> very important. Next week, we're going to be talking once again about guns and talking to a gun expert would you ever work with actual guns on a set? I, I have in the past, and every single time I've wondered why we still use real guns. I did like a little promotional shoot for a friend of mine, and he had his armorer on set, and this was an unpaid job, and the armorer really insisted on using these old guns from World War II. And you know, the problem with using real guns even if they're loaded with blanks, is that there's still the potential of a projectile. Like The armorer told me, we're going to be firing these old guns at you. They're loaded with blanks, but you need to be treating this like you're actually getting shot at. I might get shot today for the dumbest reason. What actually happened? You carried on with the I scene didn't. like a trooper? I was supposed to somersault out of the way of the gunfire, but every time I did it, my heart was pounding because I just thought, this is, this is the moment I get shot. This happens all the time, you know, like 
you are on set. This is a no-budget type of short film. Everybody's standing around waiting for the shot. There is this pressure of, oh, okay, all right, I'll do it. It sounds a little dangerous. Maybe I'll get shot today, but, you know, all for the sake of art. (laughs) Yeah, and we're all here. Might as well do it. Yeah, and unfortunately, this is happening all the time. Not necessarily with guns. It might be some sort of stunt with a moving vehicle, something that goes wrong. And got to say that that train coming down the track, talk about amateur. I can't believe that that director did not get permission to actually shoot on the railway track. William Hurt clearly didn't know all the facts around that. If he did, he would never have got onto the railway track. People go too far a little bit sometimes. You know, we're still dealing with human lives. And yeah, getting the shot is important, but we're dealing with human lives. All right, Jennifer, well, really great to catch up. We'll do another episode shortly. And thanks for spending a little bit of your time here on the the film podcast. It's always a grand old time. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.